around April of 2020s when the UK actually reported this incidence of Kawasaki-like syndrome, toxic shock-like syndrome happening in kids. And the one thing that they had in common was their prior exposure to COVID. Um, and so at that point, people started putting two and two together and saying, this is probably not just an uptick in Kawasaki or toxic shock syndrome. This might be something related to the virus that we're seeing. And so lo and behold, you know, we there were so many groups formed around the world, right? The World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, the Europeans also had a group, and they basically came up with this entity called MISC. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman, also known as the PD Pals as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at The PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Thank you for joining us on the Well Child Podcast. This is part two of our COVID series. Last episode, we talked to Dr. Janice Koshi, our infectious disease specialist, who told us about her experiences on the front lines during this pandemic and gave us great information about COVID-19 in adults and how to protect ourselves and our families. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, please check it out. For today's episode, I am so, so, so super excited and thrilled to introduce our guest speaker for today. She trained in pediatrics at the University of Chicago and then went on to further specialize in pediatric rheumatology at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. She is now a practicing pediatric rheumatologist and assistant professor in the department. During her career, she presented her research on topics ranging from pulmonary hemorrhage and pediatric lupus patients and many, many other rheumatologic and complicated conditions like juvenile arthritis and dermatomyositis, along with various publications and renowned platforms, journals, and conferences over the years. As assistant professor, she continues to mentor medical students, residents, and fellows, and travels locally, statewide, and nationally to lecture and speak on various topics in her field. Knowing her personally for many years, starting from our medical school days, I can say firsthand that she has made all of these accomplishments look effortless, even though we know how much dedication and hard work it all takes. She is truly an inspirational woman as a mom, friend, and physician, and we are truly, truly grateful that you could take time out of your busy, busy schedule to chat with us. We are truly honored to have you on our podcast, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Simoon Singla. Yay! <laughs> Welcome! Welcome! So excited to have you. Thank you. That was a that was a beautiful introduction. That really was. <laughs> well, I meant every word, but um, we this has been a crazy year, as you know, for all of us, and um, we have a lot of questions for you. But before we bombard you with all of our questions, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your career, and what kind of brought you here today. Right. So. Um, thank you for having me. I know this is a very um, important topic to a lot of our listeners and parents. And so what my journey to pediatric rheumatology led from, oh, it started really from childhood with my fascination with immunology. And then when I trained in pediatrics, the rheumatology cases were really the most interesting to me. So 
as a resident, the last thing you really want to do is go home and, and read on every single patient that you have. But in rheumatology, that was so different for me. And I would actually want to go home and, and research like, oh, what are, you know, what does this patient have? Why are they presenting with this? What are the treatment options? So that that's kind of when I internally knew that this is probably the right specialty for me. And so um, after residency, I went ahead and pursued fellowship for three years and then really got into rheumatology. And I wanted to train at a place that was very large and saw just a wide variety of cases. And so at um, it, being in a big city, of course, you see all sorts of different things. And I've, I've never really turned back or regretted the decision to do rheumatology. So it's kind of how I'm here. And then in the, in the middle of my training, I, I had three kids along the way, <laughs> once as a resident, <laughs> once as a fellow, and once as an attending. And so my, my youngest one is almost two now. And um, it's, it's, been, it's been a wild ride, but I don't look back. I think it's been very um, fulfilling. That's amazing. So how old would they be now? The oldest is, is eight. She's turning eight in a few weeks. Um, the middle one is four about to go on five and the baby's about to turn two. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I can bow down to you. <laughs> hey, take the village. It is not it really good. <laughs> yeah. That's really, really amazing. I don't know how you do it all. Yeah. I don't actually. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I try to do it all. And then I realized I'm not good at it all. You know, that's like a, a whole different podcast. And so <laughs> have to be okay with delegating what you're not so great at. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's so interesting. My husband and I had our kids the same kind of timeline as you, except we stopped it too. We were like, yeah, we can't do three. <laughs> but he said one time something that I thought was really interesting, and this is not meant to offend anyone. It was just one of those comments. But so we had our first in residency, our second when he was in fellowship, when he was uh, specializing. And when I was doing my chief here, and then when we were like, do we want a third or don't we? He was like, I think the third can happen for people who don't want to be perfect <laughs> or like are okay not being perfect. And he's like, but it's kind of true though. It's like, so? but you just kind of go with it after the second one, the third one, I'm just like, you know what? He ate dirt, but it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> We'll just tell them not to do it and hope that it doesn't happen again. Right. <laughs> now, do your three follow the birth order? I'm already veering off track here, but the, you know, that kind of traditional birth order first is the perfectionist and the second is kind of the wild child and the third's the laid back one. hundred percent. Oh, wow. That's 100%. awesome. The first one is like a mini me because I was also first child, yeah. female, color coded, you know, planners. She's very much like that. The middle one's more go with the flow. And the third one's like, I'm here what's happening? Like, look, how can I help? <laughs> I love that. That's crazy. So with, with the pandemic and how has the, how have you adjusted with the three kids? So have, have you, I don't know how you're standing and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> made it here. it's been hard because we, the pandemic really started for us in, um, like the lockdown, I should say, started in March, mid-March, where schools just completely shut down. Mm -hmm. So our structure and way of life completely was flipped upside down. And so everyone was at home all the time. I was doing telemedicine. My husband is still working. I mean, he has, he's emergency medicine, so he really can't work from home. Um, and so I was trying to do as much telemedicine as possible, trying to get the kids some sort of routine in terms of, okay, this is when you're doing school. This is your break time. Here's 
some activities. We tried to limit screen time as much as possible, but we definitely had a little laxity in those rules during that time. And then it kind of, after a month or so, it got to be our new normal of everyone just being around. And so we tried to make the best of it as much as possible. And I agree. Again, this is not what this podcast is about, but because you said that about the screen time, I've noticed a lot of parents have that guilty feeling about how things have gone with, you know, screen time over the last year. And especially for our audience, I do want them to know from a doctor's perspective, that's okay. Be forgiving to yourself. When we say the, the detrimental benefits of screen time, it's for knowledge and it's for, you know, making sure it doesn't get away from you. But if you had to do what you had to do in that time, it's, you know, it's a pandemic, you know, we have to be forgiving to ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. And we did uh, really cherish our time walks outside, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, uh, it was really a nice time for us. Yeah. Yeah. And we asked this question to Janice too, um, with regards to the pandemic and being a two doctor household, mm-hmm. um, you know, she was in a similar position like Sammy. Um, and so we, we've had that question asked to us by a lot of our patients, you know, what are your thoughts about school and sending kids back to school during the pandemic? So I was just curious, how did you go about making that decision and, and deciding on what you were going to do? Great question. Yes, I think it was a, a serious decision for us because I um, I have rheumatoid arthritis and I'm immune suppressed, ironically. Uh, <laughs> so I I have to weigh that on how how much exposure I want around me, right? So for us, it was about okay. I think I'm okay. I'm at a good place. I'm comfortable with my children going back because I know that they understand the importance of masking. They see us do it. Um, They know the importance of it. And also for their own learning and their development, I think it's really important for them to get back at it. Um, And at school, another thing was they're very good about distancing, masking, uh, hand washing. So I was comfortable on that front. But it's a very personal decision and you can't really say what's right or wrong. It's what fits for every family. Absolutely. So that's really interesting. Um, so you said you had RA, uh, which is a rheumatoid condition. So did you know you had that before you decided to go into rheumatology? Or is that just a coincidence? It, that was actually a complete coincidence. I wow. had no clue I would have anything rheumatologic um, in dealing with what I do every day. And so when I started having symptoms of RA, like stiffness in my fingers and pain, I really thought I was just that hypochondriac (laughs) student. I mean, a fellow at this point that would have everything that they read. And then eventually I got to a rheumatologist and they were like, nope, no, you have RA. I was like, I knew I wasn't, I knew I wasn't making it up in my head. (laughs) And that, yeah. So I've, pretty much had it for eight, not eight years now. So I definitely know what my patients go through. I think it's been a a blessing and a curse at the same time. I feel that very much. I think every doctor, when they sit on the other side of the exam table, suddenly becomes an exponentially better doctor. (laughs) I hope so. I think patients relate to it. At the beginning, I was a little bit hesitant to share that I'm kind of going through the same thing, that I have the same worries as you. But I think when people see that you're doing the same things that you're recommending, it feels just that much better and stronger. That makes sense. That's awesome. 
So um, kind of going back a little bit with regards to um, so your experience, you kind of told us about your personal experience with COVID-19 when the pandemic hit, but what did you notice from a rheumatologic standpoint? Uh, you know, how did things go in the hospital side or from home, like when you, you know, when you were doing telemedicine and maybe if you don't mind educating our, uh, our audience a little bit about the symptoms of COVID in kids. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so in the beginning, when the shutdown happened, nobody wanted to come into clinic, understandably. They were very scared about COVID. It's, it was very much an unknown, way more than what it is now. And I was more worried about my patients because they're all immunosuppressed. So they're on steroids, they're on biologics. And so obviously, anytime your immune system is suppressed, you are at increased risk for an infection. That's one of the guidances that we give when we start the medication. So of course we get a slew of questions coming in from our families about what should I be doing? Um, do I need to be at home all the time? And our recommendations at that time really didn't change from flu season. Like anytime that there's a uh, not just a pandemic, but a viral season, it's the same recommendations, like please wash your hands, the same guide, guide you know, guidelines. The only difference was, but in March, masks weren't mandated at that time. So at, all we had to go by was social distancing to flatten the curve. Um, we would wear, I think masks were kind of coming out at that time. So when patients asked about it, I always said, yes, yes, yes. Um, and then it finally became a resounding yes when it became mandated. Mm -hmm. And most of the kids at that time were out of school. There was nowhere that... Um, that was even an option to go back in person or not. So it was almost easier during that time because we knew we all had to be at home. Nothing was happening going on. And then, you know, as things, so March happened and April happened and COVID really thankfully didn't affect my patients too much to where we were seeing a rise in hospitalizations from COVID. Really most of them kind of wrote it out at home that had the symptoms, um, including the fever, the runny nose, any, all the symptoms that happened in adults were just a little less in my patients, thankfully, even though they were immune suppressed. And they followed the guidelines of quarantining for two weeks, staying at home. And then they kind of went about after they got over it. And then I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, but after about April, we started seeing reports of something called MISC, which we'll go into detail about, but that's kind of when we realized that COVID-19 in kids is not just a, adults are smaller, or kids are small versions of adults. It's a completely different entity in children, even though the symptoms can be similar with the fever and the cough. Um, and so our understanding of COVID has changed over the past year because of what's happened and what's panned out. And it's really requires a lot of patience for both the patients and the medical community because it's so evolving. Sure is. I, I'm also curious, um, you know, you mentioned something about how your patients were immune suppressed, but they were they were overall doing well. Um, my husband, who's also an oncologist, has the same situation, right? His patients are constantly on chemotherapy. Their immune systems are suppressed for various reasons. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was really concerned about those high-risk individuals. And I'm curious about what you think about this, because anecdotally, and I've tried to find some good literature on this, but I can say for now anyway, anecdotally, even though they were more prone to getting it if they were exposed to it, they actually weren't getting hospitalized at the rates we thought they were going to get hospitalized. And so our theory was that COVID-19, the detrimental effects of it are an inflammatory response. And people with an immune system that's been suppressed 
whether it's because of chemotherapy or you know, uh, steroids or whatnot, they weren't able to mount that inflammatory response actually. So they tended to actually not get super sick from it, which is also why steroids have now been used to help treat, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the aftermath of COVID, not just the acute symptoms, but this hyperinflammatory response really is due to inappropriate activation of the immune system. And yeah. so and that's the bread and butter of what rheumatologists do. Yeah. <laughs> right? We try to squash that inappropriate immune response from the beginning. So a lot of my patients, yeah, you're right, they weren't being hospitalized for MISC. We have a hand few, but or handful, but not as many as just a regular child coming in with no known underlying medical conditions. So it's pretty interesting on how what the immune response has been to this virus, um, which is why there's still so many unknowns about it. Yeah. And, and that's really interesting from your perspective, because your group of patients are a small niche, you know, they're a small group of patients that have these rheumatologic conditions. And, and from mine and Sammy's perspective, we kind of noticed something similar in kids that were healthy as well. Um, as many of our listeners probably noticed uh, in, in the community that children in general were getting less sick than the adults were uh, overall. Of course, we had, we still had hospital in some children. And there were some children with other medical problems that still were more prone to um, get more severe symptoms. But by and large, um, and Sammy, let me know if you, if you disagree or if you notice anything different, but we noticed very mild symptoms like runny nose, congestion, headaches. Um, you know, sometimes it was hard to tell whether they were having allergies or whether they got another common cold or it was the weather change or, um, or if it was actually COVID. And so that was, I think, a challenging part of us being in the general pediatric world to figure out, you know, what is what. So um, I'll, I'll yeah. let Sammy comment on that too. I couldn't agree more. I think the, the best learning points from what you just said um, is that, well, now I would consider myself and Anna at the very least, and, and definitely you too, Dr. Singla, somewhat of COVID experts because of how many we've seen over the last year. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but kids don't do what adults do. So real important because parents often think if they, if they don't have a fever, they must not have COVID. And that's not true. Um, children will not necessarily have a fever if they have coronavirus. Oftentimes they present with allergies, just like adults, they can also be completely symptom-free. They could just be carrying it and you wouldn't even know. And, and they look perfectly peachy keen. They can have the upper respiratory symptoms, but I've rarely seen them have anything major. The cough doesn't seem to be out of the ordinary to what a normal cold would do. I've rarely seen them have their asthma triggered by it or anything respiratory distress wise. And a lot of times actually they'll have stomach symptoms and not even the upper respiratory stuff. So they might have vomiting or just some diarrhea. Uh, and then more importantly, also for parents, I want them to know the loss of smell and taste happens rarely in children, teenagers maybe, but the young kids rarely get that. And so there's really no way to know if your child has COVID not to make it intimidating, but if there's a suspicion there, just get them tested. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what we noticed. Uh, you know, I think the biggest take home for parents, even as we get into this new year um, and as we go through 
you know, peaks, uh, we go through up, ups and downs in the community um, uh, based on the COVID cases out there. I think what you said was the most important. You know, we, we look for these symptoms as mild as they might seem. Uh, if the children are in school, I think the, the best thing to do, the safest thing to do is to pull them out of school, talk to your healthcare provider, your pediatrician, um, you know, go over these symptoms with them, get them tested and then quarantine just because, um, you know, mild symptoms can, it can still cause a spread uh, uh, of COVID. So one thing was for me at the beginning, when we were getting used to coronavirus as doctors and how it looked. I remember specifically, I had one patient who we were suspecting might've had COVID very early on, say March, April, for example, and she had had a heart transplant. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be, it's going to be terrible. And I called the next day to check up on her and they were like, she's fine. Called the day after she's fine. We can barely tell she's even sick. Have you noticed that with your patients too, Dr. Singler? I, you know, I haven't, um, the severity of it, I know it's it's a big heterogeneous mix of patients we in terms of the degree of immune suppression that we deal with. So my patients that have juvenile arthritis on biologics or steroids, um, I worried for them, but yes, you're right. I didn't get call back saying I'm, I'm in the hospital now and I'm on two liters of oxygen. You know, it was, it was always, Hey, I don't feel good. I tested positive. I'm just going to write it out at home. And most of them thankfully have been okay in the outpatient setting. So yes, very similar to yours. Now we have had a handful of patients, like I mentioned, that are on a lot more uh, immune suppression for their disease that end up in the hospital, but still they're in the hospital and they're they make it out okay, thankfully, as far as we know. So they might require oxygen here and there. We have to hold their immune suppression, but we give them supportive treatment and they're really out of the hospital. Um, so we haven't, you know, the, our uh, counterparts in the adult side are seeing much sicker, sicker um, manifestations of COVID. And um, not to say that kids don't get sick, they do get sick. I think there's so many factors that kind of lead up to that sickness. Mm-hmm. And so on what medications you're on, you know, um, is everybody else infected? How much have you traveled? What the symptoms itself are sometimes hard to, to gauge based on what you're saying, you know, is it, a, is it allergies? Is it the flu? Is it, and so your clinical skills kind of go out the window because you don't know what is what in this case, so <laughs> you just get tested if you have any concerns about that. It's true. You're like, it could be a cold, could be allergies, could be strep, could be COVID. I don't know. <laughs> You're like, what was that last one? Could be. <laughs> exactly. So to kind of get to the, you know, the main reason we really wanted to do this podcast and have you on was to talk about this uh, condition that you alluded to earlier called MISC, which stands for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, so tell us about that and your experience with it. So in uh, around April of 2020 is when the UK actually reported this incidence of Kawasaki-like syndrome, toxic shock-like syndrome happening in kids. And the one thing that they had in common was their prior exposure to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, people started putting two and two together and saying, this is probably not just an uptick in Kawasaki or toxic shock syndrome. This might be something related to the virus that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so lo and behold, you know, we 
there were so many groups formed around the world, right? The World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, the Europeans also had a group. And they basically came up with this entity called MISC. Um, our colleagues in Europe called it PIMS or Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome. And the crux of it is basically that your body has gone into overdrive. It's like you have the switch and it just kept it on in trying to fight the, the virus. And then it never turned it off. It just forgot. And it led to something that I like to call TMI or too much inflammation. <laughs> so... And when you have hyperinflammation or TMI, basically any organ is game. And, you know, you're going to have this multitude of symptoms slash um, organs affected because inflammation is kind of head to toe anywhere. It's, it, it doesn't have a predilection for just one organ. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we started getting more and more information that immune suppression actually helps this condition because like we mentioned earlier, you're trying to dampen that immune response. And so our lives have been so different since April onwards. I mean, pediatric rheumatology is this very small field to begin with. And after MISC started, we kind of came up, became a little bit more popular because they were asking for help on immune suppression, you know, um, in addition to help from cardiologists, GI doctors, neurologists on what are the various organ manifestations that can happen. So MISC can present typically, if I'm not mistaken, two to four weeks after actually having had COVID. That's how we're counseling our patients. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's temporally associated with the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, that causes COVID-19. And so really about two to six weeks after the peak incidence of the acute infectious process is where you can see this aftermath of the inflammation. And so what we're telling our parents um, is that you know, if your child has had COVID, um, you know, get them through that initial phase of them having the cough, congestion, runny nose and whatnot. And then once they get better, you still really want to watch them carefully between yeah. that two to, as you said, actually six week mark. And mm -hmm. for us, our understanding of this condition is they have to have the fever part. So we actually, we have seen kids without the fever. Oh. It's their clinical index of suspicion of MISC basically. And fever is a very common presenting sign. It's just a sign that your immune system is turned on trying to fight off nothing actually. So it's, right. the virus is gone at this point. Someone has just left the button on or the switch on. And so at, you have to have a very high index of, of suspicion because if the patient has had this prior exposure and they're just not looking well about a month or so after, that has to be the first thing on your on your. Uh, differential or your list of what things could be. Of course, the differential for something like this is broad, right? It could be Kawasaki. It could be an actual, another infection altogether. It could be something oncologic or rheumatologic. But with that being said, you kind of have to, everything going on, right? You have to have a bias towards MISC and, and learn how to test for it. So we have seen it without fever. Yes. Yeah, no, another caveat I just wanted to mention before I forget is that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of children that do test positive for COVID. Uh, something we're doing in our practice is we call them a month later, you know, to check in to make sure they don't have any other symptoms, you know, that are um, suspicious of MISC. But one thing I wanted our listeners to know is that kids that have really mild symptoms that, you know, were exposed to COVID, but never got tested because they didn't really have symptoms. I think it should be on their radar as well, because I don't know if you've seen this in your practice, but I've 
seen some patients present with MISC that never really tested positive, but they were exposed to other family members or other people. So because children get such mild symptoms, it's hard to know sometimes, right? Correct. Correct. And that's why in the criteria itself, you, um, one of the criteria, I think it's, let me just look at it before I, um, tell you the wrong group, but it was, I believe it was the CDC group that actually has in their criteria for links to SARS-CoV-2, you can have COVID exposure within the prior four weeks, not necessarily be positive for it. So yes, you have to have a high suspicion based on kind of who's around them, where have they gone, have they traveled, things like that. So um, at the end of the day, it's all kind of putting it all together. It's not one pinpoint, you know, the fever that's lasting for five days, the belly pain, you kind of have to put it all together in the setting of what's been happening in this patient's life for the past couple of weeks. So for our audience, what they should be looking out for if they're a mom or a dad, um, if they've had COVID or maybe perhaps been exposed to it several weeks prior, and now they may or may not have a fever, but more often do than don't, a new fever that you can't explain. And then almost any other symptom, right? They could have stomach aches, they could have neurologic or headaches, right? They could have rashes. It just depends. Yes. A lot of the symptoms are also, um, they are typical of Kawasaki or can mirror Kawasaki. So that includes your mucocutaneous changes, basically your um, mucous membranes, your eyes, like the whites of your eye can turn red. You can have um, swelling in the hands and feet, Um, just fussy, not looking well, not wanting to eat. You can have red, really cracked lips. Um, The biggest thing really that causes a lot of worry and morbidity is the cardiac dysfunction. And Mm -hmm. and that is a a difference between MISC and Kawasaki is that yes, we in both entities, we worry about the heart, but in Kawasaki, we worry about the coronary arteries or the blood vessels that kind of feed the heart. And in MISC, it can be really anything is game. Your coronary arteries can be affected, your um, your ventricles can be affected where you have myocardial dysfunction. So the pumping action of the heart can be affected. The um, electricity, like the electrical impulses can lead to arrhythmia. So there's a whole slew of things that are a little bit different in MISC versus Kawasaki. So a couple of things immediately as a mom, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> so this is not very common, right? <laughs> no. No, thankfully, this is not very common. We just, we worry about it because that's the biggest thing that like your fever, you know, we can fix with medications. We just don't want to catch the cardiac issues later. We want to see it sooner than later in any, anything really. So especially when it comes to the heart. Yes. And I personally, and I don't know if you agree, I have not seen one child succumb to COVID yet. Thank goodness. Have you? No, I haven't either. Um, And that's, you know, we're thankful for that. The other thing is that we know now, we know more now than we did, you know, six months ago. And that's the other important thing, I think, for moms and dads out there that as we get more and more information, we'll have uh, more insight on how these children do long term. And so I get, I have had some children that have had MISC and and some kids that have had COVID and parents come in and are worried about these complications, you know, and for the most part, um, from what you guys are seeing as well, we're not seeing too many long-term complications, but again, we're still collecting data, right? Because we're still so new into this. Um, so maybe a year down the line, we're not a hundred percent sure on how this could affect their heart and affect, um, their other systems down the line. But so far it's been rare, right? Number one. And secondly, kids are recovering. 
So the take home message being most children who get coronavirus are going to be perfectly fine and they're going to go on with their life like as if they had caught another virus. However, there's a very small percentage that potentially may have this complication. And we right now as general pediatricians keep a real close eye on our patients that we know have had or been exposed to coronavirus several weeks out. And then it's also affected how we treat athletes because they might have this small chance of having their heart be affected by the coronavirus, we um, have a different criteria for whether or not we clear athletes to go back into sports sooner rather than later. So bottom line is really talk to your doctor uh, when the time comes so that they can let you know if your child, especially if they're an athlete or in in athletics, if they need uh, more testing, heart testing and things like that before they can go back into sports. Right. And for most of these kids that have um, MISC involving their heart, they get plugged into an MISC clinic where the rheumatologist and cardiologist kind of co-manage um, their medications and monitoring their heart. And like you said, we don't have long-term data because there, it hasn't been long-term yet, right? Oh, it's been months really. So as the years go by and then the months go by, we'll have a little bit more info on what this means for um, cardiac remodeling. I mean, we, we tend to think about these same issues with our Kawasaki disease patients. Once you're out of the hospital, there's a a whole lifetime of worry because the way your body heals inflammation, especially when it comes to the walls of the blood vessel, can lead to fibrosis and stiffening. And so you you will always be plugged in with a cardiologist until they say, we don't want to see you anymore. Just because there's a lot of other things you have to think about in terms of the long-term effects of inflammation on organs. And it's the same take home for MISC as well. Fascinating. It's just what I'm so fascinated. I'm sitting here, my mind's going like at a mile a minute. I'm thinking, I wonder if, you know, they're going to realize 20 years down the line that this did this, you know, those patients are more likely to develop rheumatoid arthritis, for example. You know, it's just fascinating. Right. And it's, it, we're in that period of data collection and we will be for a long time. Um, and at that point, maybe we'll have more firm recommendations on what to do. I think it's better to be more vigilant than not. So if it includes getting serial echocardiograms, you know, month to month, then we do that. <laughs> I agree a hundred percent better safe than sorry, for sure. Yeah. Now, with the whole talk of the immune system and, you know, how, what we can do and whatnot, one question Anna and I get asked all the time, and I'm so happy I can ask it of a pediatric rheumatologist, um, is how to, can one boost a child's immune system? How can they make sure that their kids have the best chance of not getting sick, or if they do get sick, having minimal symptoms? Right. Right. That is a, a very good question. And it, I think it's so interesting that you're asking that to a rheumatologist. Let me explain why. Uh, my entire training and life's work has been how to suppress the immune system. <laughs> <laughs> and so boosting it, I kind of have to like flip gears a little bit, but it's a very appropriate question. And I think about it for my own kids as well. And there is not one pill or one answer to it. I think at the end of the day, people kind of revert to the supplements, you know, vitamins, minerals, what should they be taking? And at the end of the day, everything that you really need comes down to your diet and lifestyle. First and foremost, that's at the, that's at the base of everything. So what I always recommend is something that um, mimics the Mediterranean diet, which is the Ah, anti-inflammatory diet. And it focuses a lot on the fruits and veggies and mainly because 
that those are the foods that give you all the supplements, phytonutrients, everything that you want to be able to fight infections. Mm-hmm. And so omega threes, you know, I don't think it's necessary for kids to supplement with that because the data doesn't show that supplementing with vitamin X prevents the occurrence of whatever flu or COVID. Um, if that was the case, then that would be really nice. And, you know, people would be <laughs> going to a whole different uh, <laughs> medical uh, treatment strategy, but that's not the case. And so first and foremost, sleep, um, mind body medicine, and then your diet are the, at the crux of immune boosting supplements, you know, immune boosting methods, I should say. Um, and then when you're thinking about, okay, if you have COVID or if you have the flu, what can I do? And um, evidence base shows that vitamin C, if you take it at high doses, can actually decrease the days uh, that you're experiencing the symptoms of wow. headaches. And But you have to take it really early on, not on day like three, you know, two and a half, you have to take it early on. But at the end of the day, if your immune system is there, you should be able to mount a good response and clear whatever virus you have within about a six week period. I just love what you said, because it pretty much sums up like the goal of PD pals for why we started this, because really we get this question asked, like Sammy said, nonstop. And the, our answer is very similar to yours. There's not a magic pill. There's not one simple answer because we would all be doing it by now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what you said, I, I loved about diet, nutrition, mind, body, sleep. I mean, those are the pillars. Those are what we talk about all the time. And so I, I'm really glad you said that because I think it drives home the point that it has to be, you have to look at it from all angles and, um, with the way our, um, nutrition and diet has been kind of, um, you know, uh, formed in our society. It's, it's definitely, uh, I think leading to a lot of these conditions, um, you know, cancer, uh, immune problems. I think a lot of it is diet. So I'm so happy that you, you mentioned it. I would love to have a separate podcast just on this. I mean, I just, I feel like I have so many questions for you just on the healthy yeah. diet and what you recommend and what you've research because you have a special interest in this too, right? Correct. I guess, yes. I have a special interest in integrative medicine and I'm always trying to look for ways outside of conventional medicine to treat my patients that are immune suppressed. You know, I see a lot of patients with not only just like juvenile arthritis or childhood lupus, but chronic fatigue or um, amplified pain syndrome, whether it's primary or in addition to their underlying rheumatic issue. And a lot of it, I always tease out like, okay, do you ever notice that certain stress stressors trigger your flare or the, and, and the answer is always, yes, there's some component of anxiety, whether it's positive or negative anxiety that kind of causes flares. And so I think my job as a, as a rheumatologist and as a pediatrician is to kind of help bring awareness to that connection because the mind and body are not two separate entities. They're one, they're one piece. And when you don't address one it affects the other. And so I always like to encourage them to do meditation. You know, I, I know this could be a whole <laughs> podcast and I love talking about this on end, but Me too. <laughs> the time if we're going to teach our you know community about this, it's in the pediatric population that you see this information because they're going to grow up with skills of how to cope with not just medical issues, but other things too, various stressors. And Absolutely. so I think it's an invaluable tool that we can give them. 
Absolutely. I have oh, so much to say about this. But for <laughs> one, for our patients, you know, studies have shown this. You know, for example, studies have shown that children who have anxiety will have worse asthma attacks. And so there is a direct link with what is going on in your mind and how your body responds to it. So huge on that. My yeah. husband even says it again as an oncologist that he can see a clear you know, difference between people who have cancer, who have a positive mindset and those who succumb to the illness from a mental perspective right away and how, how they have, you know, how their illness progresses. And so it's huge. And I love that. And please, yes, let's do part two of this. Definitely, definitely. And the thing is like, none of these answers are, they don't give you instant gratification. Like I don't have a pill for you. I don't have a, you know, a way to make your anxiety go away. It's kind of making the underlines of how one should think about a stressor or how one should feel, you know, no one is going to be perfect ever. That's the other thing that people need to realize is that when you're coping with medical issues, school issues, a pandemic, there's no perfect answer. It's what works for you. How do you cope with a certain thing? And so those things, it takes time for people to realize that this is not a one, you know, fix that it's going to take time to get to the, where they want to be that end point. And it's not one size fits all, right? There's so much experimenting within our own body that goes on. So one person might learn throughout their life that they just can't tolerate gluten, but somebody else, that's not their trigger, right? And it's maybe that sugar is their trigger. So yet there's a little bit of that. And I think the biggest reason why we want to talk about this again in a full podcast is because we so often focus on it after the diagnosis, after all the symptoms are there, right? A lot of us are not thinking about how do we prevent, you know, a big part of medicine is prevention, which we, um, that's what we wanted to focus mostly on because we, the, and, and this is not meant for parents to feel guilty, you know, about the fast food that they picked up or, you know, the, the things that we all do on a day-to-day basis just to survive, but just having the awareness that we need to just change a small little thing about our daily routine. And that can play a big role in our anxiety, in our stress, in our immune system, you know? So I think that's, yeah, we have a lot, a lot more to discuss. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) <laughs> yes. No mommy shaming, but awareness. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Awesome. So um now we'll go back to kind of <laughs> what COVID. we were talking about COVID. Um, because we could talk for hours about this. But um thoughts about your about the vaccine. Now that the vaccine is out and um healthcare providers have been getting it and it's out in the community, um, what are your thoughts about it? So I think it's very important, first of all, to get kids vaccinated. Now, before we get to that point in time, we have to realize why kids weren't included in a lot of these vaccine trials. And it's just like I said before, kids aren't little adults. So they're not, you can't just extrapolate whatever happens in adults is going to happen in kids. So before we can approve this vaccine for children, safety is the number one thing we have to think about. We're not going to just go giving the same dose to children and hope for the same response. And so right now, the, the two that are FDA approved by Pfizer and Moderna are starting trials in children, I believe 12 to 17. And the reason why we start on the higher end, right, of the pediatric age group is because they are at least closer to the adult um, ages. And so it'll be a step-by-step process in figuring out not only the efficacy, but also the safety data. Um, And I think once we get that data, which will hopefully be soon, like within 
hope by the end of the year, I think it would be okay to give children the vaccine. I, I know I would give mine the vaccine if the data said, yes, this is safe to give. Uh, I would want them to, to get it because I think what people real, don't realize is that kids, yes, they can, they don't get as sick. Obviously we've established that, right? But they number one, they can get sick. And number two, they can they can be asymptomatic and spread it. So the whole point of vaccines is also to create herd immunity. And, and that's they're part of our herd. And so we have to vaccinate them as well to ensure that they're not just spreading it around to everybody else. And again, nothing is without risk. That's never been the claim. Uh, even a vaccine can have potential side effects and risks. However, that's what the trials are, is to see how risky it is. And if there is a chance that it doesn't offer the benefit of you know, keeping you safe from the illness, then they don't proceed forward. And they keep trying again until they get the formula that they know is relatively safe compared to getting the actual illness. Correct. It's always risk benefit analysis right. for any, just not just vaccine, but any medication as well. You know, we want to make sure what we're giving you is for a greater cause and not going to do something worse. Um, and so in, in kids, it's, I think it's really, really important to consider vaccinating them. Uh, we're going to do our research, obviously. That's what the um, safety monitoring data board is for. I have full trust in their community um, and to tell us if there is something that doesn't look right. Because the trials are not only going to assess the safety, but the various doses as well. So we'll get a lot, of, lot more information from them in the next couple of months. And I think the other thing that's exciting about this is that it's the mRNA vaccine. And we talked about this on our previous um, episode. Uh, but, you know, a lot of parents concern with vaccines, like with the flu vaccine, is they don't want their children to get sick as soon as they get it, you know. And, um, uh, and you know, they are getting a little small piece of the inactive virus uh, with the flu vaccine. But this is really, I think, even more novel because they're just getting the little instructions to make the protein so that their immune system recognizes um, that, you know, recognizes the virus when they are exposed to it or if they're exposed to it. So I think that's really exciting um, that, you know, that we can potentially minimize uh, symptoms and in, in, in not, um, you know, of course, like you guys mentioned, you can get symptoms after um, getting a vaccine. But this is a big concern that I see from our, the patients um, that we see. I don't know if, if you agree. I think also what I always tell them is the fact that you're getting symptoms after a vaccine, like the fever, the headache, the muscle ache, it means the vaccine is working. Your body is seeing something mounting a response to it. And that's, those are the symptoms of mounting a, an appropriate response. And so I think it's, it's reassuring, even though it's not fun. Nobody, nobody thinks it's fun to have fevers and headaches and muscle aches, but it, it's, it's very temporary. It goes away after about 48 hours. And I think it's worth enduring for the greater good. <laughs> um, and it, it'll, it'll protect you. So it's, it means it's working. Yeah. And so I know, you know, that's very, that's something I think a lot of people would be really interested in, especially with regards to the COVID vaccine. One quick uh, caveat though, we at press time, Johnson's and Johnson's is getting their vaccine approved. And that's actually a non mRNA vaccine. Uh, so that's really interesting with, I think, greater than 90 percent efficacy. So we'll see what comes of that. They used, I, I believe, adenovirus as their uh, vector for creating this vaccine. 
But for now, we have the two major ones that you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna, which are mRNA vaccines. And uh, Anna has been fully vaccinated. And I'm sure our patients would love to, or I keep saying our patients, our audience, <laughs> which in some way you guys are our patients too, I guess, um, would love to hear about your experience. And then Dr. Singh, have you been vaccinated? I have. I have been vaccinated. Very fortunate. Um, so both of you tell us about, I, I also have, I'm in the middle of it, but why don't you tell us how, how you felt? So for me, um, I think after the first dose, I had a little bit of a headache and fever on, on day one. Uh, I took some Tylenol and it really, that was it. After the second dose, I got the Pfizer vaccine. So it was three weeks after the first shot. Um, it was a little bit worse. I had a little bit of a lingering headache, but this time I actually pre-medicated myself. So I, I took Tylenol beforehand and the symptoms again lasted for about a day. So it was, it was a little bit worse than the first time, but really overall worth it. Yeah, I was I was just going to mention that because uh, when you were talking about, you know, when you get the symptoms and you feel like, yeah, your body is responding. <laughs> that was the positive reinforcement I had to tell myself because I had a similar experience. So after my first, I got the Pfizer vaccine as well. After the first dose, I had some mild soreness in my arm, um, local tenderness, which was as expected, but I didn't really have any other symptoms. Um, after the second vaccine, about 24 to 36 hours later, I thought I had kind of <laughs> after 24 hours, I was like, I'm in the clear, you know, I had some local tenderness and, and soreness as well, a little bit more tenderness than before. Um, but then I got the body aches and the chills, and then I couldn't move, <laughs> you know, for those next few hours. And I kept telling myself, yes, the immune system is working. <laughs> and but I'm like the worst friend to you ever. Cause every time this happens to her, I just laugh. <laughs> She's just, she's just over there making fun of me and I'm going to repay the favor when she gets her second one. But, but after we took, uh, you know, after I took the medication, uh, Tylenol or Motrin, I felt a lot better. So it was definitely worth it. And I felt a little bit more at ease that, you know, it was working. Because <laughs> she's so cute in my defense. I'm not like the world's most evil person, but she's so cute. And it always it reminds me of this one time way pre-COVID where she she's very stubborn. She will not take time off if she's sick. And we told her that be careful, take it easy after your second dose because your immune system is going to have a response. And of course she didn't listen, right? And then so so it happened to us uh, to her a couple of years ago. She came to clinic, she was sick, she wasn't feeling very well, and myself and my other partner. We kept saying, go home, go home. You're no good to your patients if you're sick, uh, go home. And she had, a, she actually had a mask on, so she wasn't infecting people or anything, but she was like, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And finally, I can't remember whose idea it was, we tested her for strep and she, she found out she had strep. And it was like the minute she found out she had it, she went, oh, so good. There's <laughs> that mind-body connection. Right, right. Right. I started laughing. I would go home. <laughs> and I didn't even have a fever at that point. So it was like really early on, you know, I just like had some general generalized not feeling good. And so she, she made me test myself, but yeah, of course she tells a story to everyone. So we'll just <laughs> My now favorite. move on. Yeah, like the color just left her face. As soon as we told her she actually had something, <laughs> she was like, oh, I don't feel so good. <laughs> so, anyway, she did go home. She was a good girl. She took medication and then she came back. Okay, moving on, please. <laughs>
your immune system works is the good news out of all that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. And also quite fascinating to me and an education point for our audience as well, that when you get the vaccine, your why you feel bad is not because you're sick because vaccine right. didn't make you sick. That's that's an interest, important distinction. A virus right. will make you sick, but what makes you feel bad sometimes, especially after vaccine, is your own body. It's your yeah. own body's reaction to what we've done. Uh, and again, we're prepping the army for when they're going to meet the virus in real life. And so the army is all prepared, but they're giving you the symptoms of not feeling well beforehand. And then once you actually meet the virus later on, chances are 95% chance you won't feel bad. Or if you do much less. It's all very planned. It's kind of, you know, annoying how we have to endure the symptoms, but it's all very planned for, for not bad things to happen, basically. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So this has been an amazing discussion and obviously I would really like to have a part two, but if you had to tell us or the audience something, you know, in your years of experience, having been a a pediatric rheumatologist and what you notice, are there any take home pearls? Like if you could say like, ah, I have an, I have a microphone that's going to let me talk to all parents. What would you say? What have you learned? Um, I have learned that patience is first and foremost key because I think I mentioned earlier, our our knowledge of COVID um, is really evolving week to week, month to month. I'm sure it'll be year to year, especially like the cardiac things, you know, that we're, we're talking about. And so I think patients from the patients and the, uh, you know, parents equally in terms of guidance, guidelines, they might change in the next few years. Even after you get the vaccine, I think it's very important to follow the guidelines of masking. It doesn't mean that you can't get the virus or you can't spread the virus. So really listen to the um, guidelines that the officials give to us because it's there for good reason. Nobody, I don't think it's fun to have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Although my teenagers like it because they don't have to worry, you know, worry about the braces showing or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of that. They, they enjoy it, but I think it's there. The guidelines are there for a reason. So the vaccine is not the end all be all. I think over time, this will get better and we're getting closer to that point, but please still follow the guidelines. I know I, for one, got a little emotional when I was sitting getting my first vaccine. Did you all feel the same? Yes. I, I was like, oh my God, it's actually happening. <laughs> I know. It's so true because there's so much, you know, and, and you're on the front lines and, and all of us, it's, it's definitely it's a moment in history. I think, um, just the, it's just amazing that they were able to get it out into us. Um, so I totally agree. Listen to the officials, listen to the CDC guidelines and make sure you're, you're following all of those. Right. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. What a great conversation. The time literally just flew by. Uh, I know our audience is going to absolutely love this episode. I cannot wait to, we're we're actually expediting this one. (laughs) Um, So we just put you at the front of the line for for release. So, um, but I really do thank you for coming on. We had such a great talk and I really hope we can have you again sometime to talk about that integrative medicine piece. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for having me. And I I really hope this helps the community, um, you know, with their information and kind of what to do next or what to expect next. So, Thank you so much. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company.
Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.